Who's ever heard RAF planes fly over the church in Richmond? Come on, RAF, he's on up. They tell me, I was, we had a traffic controller, uh, air controller here a few years ago um, from Canberra, down for about 12 months. And he took me out there one day, showed me around the traffic control part. And Chris had taken me out before and I'd seen different other sides out there. Uh, it was interesting looking at the traffic control. And he said that, because um, I often notice that the planes will just fly over, you know, wheels up, fly over and sort of do circuits. So it's like a fly pass. And I said, um, What's that? He said, oh, there's, there's actually this corridor for fighters to be able to do fly pass. You know, it's sort of set in history, a corridor um, that they can go through. And you see that when uh, the F-18s come down and go, and they sort of take off. They love to sort of take off into the, into the uh, stratosphere because then they can power up and just go, boom, and show off, show off how powerful they are on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights. Um, and you sort of see the flame of them going up. Um, anyway... Why I'm talking about this is my favourite movie, pretty well of all time, is Top Gun. And, uh, you know, and I sort of think I'm one of these fighter pilots. No, no. And Tom, Gr Tom Cruise plays this brilliant fighter pilot with, uh, he's got a real problem. His call sign's Maverick, and that describes who he is. He's got real issues. He's a real, you know, pushing the boundaries and breaking the boundaries all the time sort of guy. Uh, he's got trouble. Uh, he doesn't just bend the rules, he usually breaks them. Uh, he's being disciplined by his commanding officer at the Top Gun Fighter Training Program in America. It's the sort of uh, be-all and end-all of being a fighter pilot and they train you to the top level and all this sort of stuff. And he's, he's, what he's done is he's, he's gone below the, the minimum level in, in, uh, uh, in uh, chasing someone and broken a rule. And then he tops it off by doing a fly pass and they took, they, the controller says, no, the pattern's full and he just ignores that and just flies past. I mean, I think, gee, if there was... Planes taking off a landing and did a fly pass, that's really dangerous sort of stuff. Um, anyway, he does that. And he's called, hauled into the uh, commander's office. And I love the way the commander, um, Tom Schellick, does this because he's, he's balling him out for this, you know, fight, this stunt of fly pass, but he's really getting stuck into him for the dropping below the, the rule. And when he balls him out, I love it because, you know, Maverick, Tom Cruise sort of tries to make some sort of uh, negotiator, you know, tries to get, get himself out of it. And I love the way, because then Tom Schellick turns his back on him and starts bawling him out. Now, if I'm turning my back on you, I've got no eye contact with you. you know, I'm really giving you a message, aren't I? If I turn my back on you and start bawling you out, you're in trouble. And there's no coming back. There's no negotiating. There's no nothing. And so here he is in the office of the commander being bawled out. And the commander says, these rules are made for your safety and the people flying safety. If you can't keep them, then get out. You know, and Either pull the line, discipline yourself, or leave. And I love that story because that's what God's saying to the people of Israel in Amos. They're not fighter pilots, uh, but what he's saying to them is, if you can't keep my rules and keep my relationship with me because it's for your safety and for the safety of others, if you can't do that, then I'm going to kick you out. That's what he's saying. And it's all about discipline. Because discipline's there to create safety, to create boundaries, but to give enjoyment of life uh, and for relationships to flourish. And we need discipline. And we're going to look at that. See, God's been saying in Amos chapter 1 to 3, he's been saying he's serious about his chosen people. And they need to remain focused on him, not ignore him, but remain focused on him. He's a merciful God. He's reminding them they're going to be judged. Amos chapter 4, he says, I'll be prepared to meet with your God. Ensure you love what God loves. Amos chapters 5 to 8, seek the Lord and do good. And that's seen by being constantly just 
and doing what is right. And now we come to chapter chapter 9. In chapter 9, he starts it off by saying, you know, no one's going to get away. No one. This uh, judgment that's coming is going to be upon everyone. Chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And Amos has this vision of God. Uh, one of the few in the Old Testament has a vision of God. He sees him standing by the altar. And the altar was the place where sacrifices would be offered, the relationship with God would be maintained, a blessing and, and peace of, uh, in your country and your life would come from all that. But they've forsaken all that. They've perverted. They're worshipping other gods and other, offering other sacrifices, doing everything God doesn't want them to do. And so instead of being the centre of blessing and good things, it's going to be the place of judgement. The judgement's going to begin there and go out from there. The temple... It's going to be shattered and destroyed in the future. We'll come to that later. And no one's going to get away. No one will escape God's judgment. It tells us in verses 1 to 3. And there'll be nowhere to hide from God. Nowhere at all. In verse 4. Though they're driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. He's saying not only uh, this is going to be destroyed, but you're going to be driven into exile. Assyria's going to come down. It's about... 450, 460 BC, in 420 BC, Assyria is going to come down, conquer Israel. Um, the, the, the nation of Israel is broken up into northern tribes called Israel, Judah and um, Benjamin in the south around Jerusalem. Well, the northern tribes are going to be taken away into captivity and slavery within 30 to 40 years. And they've been constantly rebelling for generations. Um, this is one of the minor prophets and there's major prophets and all those prophets in the end of the Old Testament have the same message about calling the people to get serious about God and calling them back to, to obey God and they're ignoring the prophet after prophet. They just keep ignoring him. For a moment they might get on the right track but they get on the wrong track and they're rebellious and God's had enough. They've rejected God's prophets, his mouthpieces, his speakers, his messengers. And who's the greatest prophet of all that came after this? Jesus. He wasn't just someone who was chosen. He was God made man. He was God actually speaking. He was the greatest prophet of all. He was more than that. He was also king. We'll look at that in a minute. And he's also a priest. He offered the sacrifices. But who will listen to Jesus as, he, as his message still continues to go out? For, for most people in our society, at Christmas, where we should be remembered that Jesus coming as God made man, Easter, where we should remember Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and rising in victor victory with eternal life, for most people, Christmas is all about presents and Santa Claus. Easter's about Easter bunny and egg, chocolate eggs, and both of them holidays. And people are ignoring the greatest messenger of all, Jesus. Just the way at Amos' time, they're ignoring the prophets. And God's not happy being ignored, particularly when he goes out of his way to get someone's attention, goes out of the way to meet with them. And they ignore him. He's not happy. In verses 5 to 6 describes the Lord Almighty, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who has authority and power to do what he's going to do. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts. All who mourn, all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens, sets its foundations on the earth. He calls for waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is name. 
be good if he called the waters of the sea right now and poured them out of the face of the land. That's where we get our rain from. And we're not getting that, are we? You know, we, we just fall into the trap. We talked before about this. You know, I think I control the weather because I can turn the air conditioning on in my home, my car, here, my car. You know, we can control the weather. I can get out of the rain most of the time. I've got to go outside. I feel, you know, I can control the weather. But I can't. I'm joking myself, aren't I? I mean, I might be able to get out of the elements, but I can't control the, the rain and I can't control when it starts to impact our country with, with the drought that's coming. And when I start looking at water restrictions for us, I can't control that. And I can't control natural disasters happening. Tsunamis, storms, fires, earthquakes, whatever. I can't control people in society from, from not doing things, from coming and robbing things. Or I can't even control drivers on the road, making sure they stay on their side of the road. Or don't, and particularly down in Chapel Street, I can't control them stopping at the stop sign and, rather than pulling out in front of me, which they do often. I love driving my four-wheel drive. I don't like driving Trudy's car. My four-wheel drive I love it because it's got a big bull bar and if they pull out, they're going to cop it. But it happens. I can't control it. And you know what really, really irks me the most? I can't control a stupid little common cold. You know, I get a common cold now and it just seems to get in my lungs and really gives me grief. And, and I just can't control it. it. It comes when it wants to come and it hangs around for as long as it wants to and then it goes when it wants to. And it often seems to come at the wrong time. I can't control the world. Neither can you. God does. And we live in this make-believe false world we think we do. And the people of Amos' day were thinking that. Well, we're prosperous, we're powerful, we're wealthy, we control everything they think. No, they don't. And so no one's going to get away and God's going to discipline those he loves. He, they're a sinful kingdom and he's going to do something with them because he loves them. He wants them to turn back to him. He wants them to respond. Even if only some of them do, that's what will happen. Only some will, but he wants some to respond to him and be saved. It says in verse 8, they're a sinful king, kingdom. Surely the so eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. And this nation that seems so powerful and strong now, I will destroy it from the face of the earth when the Assyrians come down and do God's work for him. Yet I'll not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. So yes, the country's going to get destroyed. Lots of people are going to be killed. They're going to be take, most of them taken away as slaves into, into exile. Um, but there's a hint here of mercy. Not all the descendants. You see, in Israel and also in the, in the south, in Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem is, even though they're doing the wrong thing also, there's people who love God, like Amos. Like all the prophets that are called here, there's more than just them, there's a whole group of people, but they're the minority rather than the majority. And God will save them. He's a God of mercy. Even when he's executing judgment, he's still merciful. And he'll protect them and watch over them. We know that God disciplines those he loves. He doesn't want people just to be rebellious and develop um, bad, wrong ways of living that it's going to keep getting them into trouble and ultimately they're going to come, come before God on judgment day and be condemned eternally to be punished because they've ignored him. He doesn't want that to happen. So he disciplines, he, he brings things into their lives to get their attention, to help them see they don't control everything. They shouldn't be so proud and so full of themselves. We know in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, 
that God disciplines those he loves. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. We need to be people who learn from history. Learn. God is the same. Now, what he wants for the people here, he wants of us today. He's an unchanging God. And we need to continue to keep learning from history. If we don't learn from the past mistakes that are made, then we'll be doomed to repeat it. Let's learn from other people's mistakes and not make them for ourselves. And sometimes we get these attitudes that really, you know, I hear them and they really make a problem of, of, of discipline and learning and, and responding and changing. It makes a problem for that because some people say, oh, it won't happen to me. They're overconfident in themselves. They, they're ignorant of the dangers. They're stubborn and proud. It's not going to happen to me. And others say, whatever. Whatever. An attitude of indifference. Don't care. But most of all, they won't take responsibility. They'll blame someone else. That's usually whatever, but blame someone else when it goes wrong. That's how it works. We can't do that with God, our creator. He knows us. And we're all accountable to him for how we live our life. So he says in verse 9, he's going to shake the nation of Israel as grain through a sieve. Um, in those days, everyone was a farming communities. Everyone knew about farming. When you um, got the grain, you didn't have these great harvests as we do. You went and did it by hand. As you did it by hand, uh, some of the grain would fall onto the ground, get mixed with soil and pebbles. Um, so you collect it all up. Rather than picking out each individual bit of grain, which would take a little while, you put it through a sieve. And the sieve would, the dust and stuff would float. There'd be a few pebbles left. You could pick out the pebbles. The grain would be left. And that's what he's saying here. He says in verse 9, I'll give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. He's going to sort through the nation of Israel. And the ones that are going to be left are the people that are honouring him, are responding to him, are in a right relationship with him. And the ones in verse 10, the ones who are overconfident, Verse 10, all sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Overconfident. A false confidence in they control things and God doesn't. And they're in trouble because of that. God disciplines those he loves. And then we come to the glory of the good old days because he says he's going to restore David's kingdom. Verse 11, I'll restore David's fallen shelter. I'll repair its broken walls and restore its room. I'll rebuild it as it used to be. When the um, exile comes in another 30, 40 years and Assyria comes down, take them away. And then after that, Babylon, uh, kingdom of Babylon will take over Assyria. And about 200 years later, uh, the kingdom of Babylon will come down and they will destroy Jerusalem and ju take Judea and, and Benjamin away in slavery also. And that temple in Jerusalem will be smashed, totally destroyed. The walls will be broken down. They'll mess it up. About 50 years in exile, then, they, then the Jews will come back and start rebuilding the, the wall and rebuilding the temple. And as we read this, we need to sort of think, well, is that what it's saying about? Is it talking about 
After exile, and it seems like it's talking about that, after exile, I'll come back and rebuild it. Then it goes on to say some other things that sort of make us struggle a bit with understanding that too. It says in verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will overtake him by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I'll bring my people back, my people Israel, back from exile. Seems like it's talking about after exile. But it's talking about the description there in agricultural terms is like no seasons and and always having the produce and and everything being so abundant. It's actually describing like the Garden of Eden again at the beginning of the Bible. And is he talking about coming back from exile? Because when they came back from exile, it wasn't like that at all. The place had been destroyed. And it's not like that right now because what happened in history? In history, they came back, they rebuilt the temple, uh, stayed around to the time of Jesus, Herod made improvements on it. But in 70 AD, after Jesus' death, uh, the Jerusalem revolted and the Romans come in and they levelled the temple. Gone. Levelled it. And they didn't just do that, they made a decree saying the Jews could not live in Jerusalem. So they kicked them out, forced them out. In the 7th century, the Muslims came down and conquered Jerusalem. And what did they build in the place? The temple that's still there today, a mosque. And all this seems to describe the nation of Israel there and the nation of Israel in a temple there and everything being right. But the Jews didn't come back after, until after World War II as a nation, did they? So there's a big break. You know, we got you know, 1,900 years from 70 AD to, you know, 1946 or whatever, 47 when they came back. And right now we still don't have it. And so right now you think, well, does there have to be a third temple be built there and they have to re-establish the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel don't have peace and security where they are now, do they? They've had more warfare and more invasion than any other country in the world. It's just what they live with since they've been established there in the 40s. And it doesn't look like it's getting any better. But is there another alternative? Is this looking even further forward than what we've just talked about? Is this looking right forward? Because when it's saying re-establish David's kingdom, David's shelter, throughout the Old Testament, there is the talk about the Messiah, the Christ, God's king. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, same thing. means God's king, God's saviour, another person like David who will establish David's kingdom, but it will be an eternal kingdom. And we know that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ hasn't established it like this here yet. But in fact, Jesus Christ was pointing to the future. Because Jesus was saying that it was going to happen in the future. He said he actually saw the temple when Jesus was alive. He was at the temple. He said, that temple, destroyed in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they said, oh, you're crazy. That took hundreds of years to build and, and kept building. And you can't do something. I mean, yeah, we have these shows that can build a house in three days. But we're not talking about some prefabricated thing. We're doing anything made of stone and wood and, and you know, an architectural masterpiece. And he was talking about his death on the cross and he was saying there's going to be a new temple and that's going to be him, but not just him, because in 1 Corinthians uh, it tells us 
And in fact, now we are the temple because the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And because of that, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. The temple is now not a physical place. The temple is where we meet with God. And where is God? God is in each and every one of us by his spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of Jesus who died on the cross. And so it's moved from a physical location to now talk about people and relationships with God. And it even gets more because in the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, um, it describes in verse 1 about a new heaven and a new earth being one place. Not talking about one country, but a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. So it's even getting bigger. And what does it all mean for you and me right now? Well, if we go to 2 Peter... We see something there because it talks about the day of the Lord. It talks about the coming of, of this King David, of the Messiah, the Christ. It talks about establishing a kingdom on earth, a kingdom like we read at the end of Amos. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 it says, This day of the Lord, where a day is like a thousand years, one day is like a thousand years to God and a day, a thousand years is like one day. God's in a different time frame. He's, time is not the same as it is for us. And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to come back and do all this, what it said in Amos. He's not slow in keeping his promise. In fact, he's patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish. He wants people to come to repentance. That's why he sent the prophet Amos and all the other prophets that people might come to repentance. That's why Jesus came, that people might come to repentance. And that's why God's holding off this whole judgment, this whole re-establishing everything, that people might come to repentance. More and more people be saved. And we never know when it will happen because it says in verse 10, it's going to happen like a thief coming in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with fire. The earth and everything in it will close and be laid bare. This whole restructure is going to happen like a thief in the night. You're never, ever going to know when it is. Anyone who says they do is a liar, a fool, is trying to mislead you. It's not going to happen. And so what sort of people should we be like? Because you know, we want what Amos said at the end there. And we want what it's saying here about Jesus and, and, and in the end of Revelation, this new heaven, this new earth, and about the day of the Lord. What sort of people should we be? Verse 11 of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speeding its coming. Holy and godly lives. It's the same idea of God loving justice and righteousness. We need to keep being like that. People who are serious about God. People who, who love what God loves, who want to please him. That's the sort of people we need to be. And looking forward. Looking forward to the day God does that or the day we join with him in that new place. Whichever comes first. And verse 14 goes on to say since you're looking forward to this make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him 
bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Let's be people who want to be spotless and blameless at peace with God. Let's be people who are really aware that we want to be right with God. We want to live in harmony with God. When God comes, we want to be seen to be doing what pleases God. And I often think, who's got treasure? Not, not buried treasure, gold and silver. What do you treasure in life? What if you lost in life, um, you know, lost a lot of things, what would you really find too hard? Most of us have treasure we're not even aware of. Sometimes things can sneak up and be treasure, like, you know, um, you know I really like my four-wheel drive, but it really gets me when it breaks down and stuff and it's unreliable, you know? Um, and sometimes you can start treasuring something, hang on, it's only a vehicle. What am I getting so upset about, you know? Yeah, it cost me money. It was only a vehicle. Um, sometimes we can get you know, houses or things can be our treasure, but in the end it's only a house. You know, I mean, you see people with bushfire, they lose everything, they get alive. Well, in the end it's only a house. Isn't it? Your lives are more important than a house. In the end, I think treasure is people around us, you know, partners, children, grandchildren, family, friends. They're treasures, aren't they? And they should be. But then sometimes we lose them, don't we? because they pass away or we move or things happen. But one treasure doesn't move away and one treasure surpasses all those by a long way. And that's Jesus Christ. And if we have Jesus as our treasure, then all these things will just fall into place. You know, we'll be living the people, we'll be living the, the people that God wanted to in Amos. We'll be living like the people that God wants to in Peter. We treasure Jesus. We'll be wanting him to come back. We'll want him to living our lives for Jesus, living to please him. I think that's what the book of Amos is challenging us to do. Listen to the prophet. Seek God and seek to please him. Let me pray. Well, we thank you for the book of Amos. We thank you for, even though it's very old and in a totally different culture, but it's so relevant to us today. And you're the same God, and you're an unchanging God. Help us to recognise that. Help us to see your call for your people to take you seriously, your call for repentance and continuing to repent, your call for people to, to love what you love so that we can please you by how we live. And Lord, help us as we live in this challenging world to continue to look forward to Jesus. Let, that, let him be our treasure. Let Jesus be our hope. So we are motivated to live for you. Amen.